My name is Brooke Patterson and it is my pleasure today to introduce you to Annie Strauch and Catherine Etty-Leal. They are experienced physiotherapists and both hold a master's in sports and musculoskeletal physio. Annie's passion for performance physiotherapy started in London's West End where she managed performers in over 30 productions. After that, performance medicine was born to provide a safe haven for singers, dancers and performers where they can receive tailored physiotherapy treatment. Annie and Catherine both specialise in vocal physiotherapy. This is going to be a fantastic podcast for clinicians who may see performers in the clinic to understand the culture and nuances of performing arts to enhance their management and really how sports medicine professionals can have a big role to play in this space. Annie is a physiotherapist, runs a successful clinic and is delving into a little bit of research and a great role model for young clinicians to see how you can juggle it all, find your niche and really contribute to the field. Welcome to the podcast, Annie and Catherine. I must admit, I'm a bit nervous about you judging my vocals just there. Um, Should we do some vocal warm-ups before we get started? Uh, No, not at all. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much, Brooke. Don't be nervous at all. Catherine and I do get nervous when we present to speech pathologists and ENTs, but there's no need to be nervous today uh, about your voice. I think one thing that we can think about is how dynamic our posture is because that's one thing that as physios and healthcare professionals, we can encourage people to just have a dynamic posture will also help produce your voice. So we could try that today while we're doing our podcast. Okay, I'm sitting up a little bit straighter already. Can you both start by telling the listeners what your typical week might look like? So what types of patients and conditions do you see and what is a vocal physiotherapist? So at Performance Medicine, we run pretty much like any other private practice for the most part. Typically, we would have a wide variety of performers coming into our diary. So anything from dancers to musicians, actors, music theatre performers, and then the stage crew and production team as well. When we're working on a show as well, we'll often have uh, sections blocked out in our diary, usually on Wednesdays and Saturdays between the double show days. And then um, we'll head off to the theatres and run sort of a mini clinic backstage at the theatres between shows as well. And we get a mix of private paying patients, work cover, TAC, and we also get non-performer patients as well coming in, which makes it really interesting and very variable. From a vocal physiotherapy point of view, a vocal physiotherapist is a physio who has a super keen interest in the voice and all that comes with it. So this means assessing and treating the anterior neck, which can be avoided uh, for many physiotherapists and allied health practitioners and and in classic physios. Understanding how our body and voice interact is one of the key things that we will do as a voice physio. And vocal injuries and vocal dysfunction are something often that we can't see. And this can be really hard to treat them in the day-to-day population. And often we don't even hear them. But when you have a voice dysfunction or a voice injury or a voice issue, it can be really debilitating for the person in front of you. So one of the key things we do is working in a multi-D team with ENTs, speech pathologists, vocal coaches, and in some instances, psychologists as well. How much of a problem is injury for performing artists? Injury for performing artists is common and there isn't a wealth of knowledge and research out there 
However, there has been some studies done, and one of the most recent studies was in 2013 um, by Randall Dick, and that, that actually reported that in dance, 67 to 95% of dancers may experience an injury. So that's uh, 1.7 to 6.7 injuries per year per dancer. So I would say that that's uh, pretty prominent. Now, in uh, the general performing arts space, there is less specific research. However, anecdotally and clinically, we see injuries that do happen for most people that use their body in a performing arts way during their training and during their performance seasons. And does it differ between the disciplines and maybe just for the listener go through the kinds of different disciplines that you do deal with? Yes, so it does differ between the disciplines. So we have our dance disciplines and that's the most common in the performing arts space. I think it's most well-known and that's where most of the research is. So their injuries can really vary depending on what kind of dancer they are. So depending on if they're in classical ballet, if they're in uh, doing contemporary dance or if they're doing more commercial dance, depending on their background from commercial hip hop type dancing. You know, if you're more of a circus performer, the circus performers, depending on what type of apparatus you're using, whether it be silks and you're an aerialist compared to someone who's a bass. You also have your musicians. So your musicians are really key as well. So that includes the vocalists and the vocal artists that we might see, but also people who really use an instrument. So they might be the, pian- the pianists, the uh, violinists, the, f- the flautists. So that's facial, upper limb, and often their overuse injuries. Yeah, so as you said, Annie, a lot of musicians uh, typically use their upper limbs for the most part of playing their instrument. So um, they do often end up with wrist and hand, shoulder injuries, even into the neck as well. Um, I think one of the biggest issues with musicians is the amount that they have to practice, particularly when they're studying at a tertiary level as well. Um, So often they'll report that they're practicing somewhere between six to 10 hours a day. Um, And one of the other issues uh, across the board, but particularly with musicians, is the culture of pain is normal. So often what ends up happening is musicians will feel pain when they're practicing and think, oh, that's a good thing because it means I'm practicing really hard and it should be painful. And then they'll ignore it for a while until it actually gets to the point where they physically can't pick up their instrument or play or both. I think as health professionals, we all know how uh, difficult it is to I guess, get someone out of that pain cycle, but also get someone back to the stage they need to be if they've had uh, such a long journey of overload and pain and injury as well. What are some of the other challenges that you face when treating this population? A lot of performing artists, and rightly so, think of themselves as artists more so than athletes. So I think that sort of adds to that culture of not acknowledging that you can injure yourself from a musculoskeletal perspective as well. I think any athlete will probably um, have a very good understanding that injury is potentially part of their job and part of their sport as well. And it's important to get on top of your injury so that you can keep playing. But I think it is um, very challenging with this population, the performing artists. Um, Dancers, I think, are starting to recognise themselves much more as athletes rather than just artists. Um, But, you know, time and time again, particularly with musicians and actors, you'll, um, you'll say to them, oh, you know, this is just like a sport. And they're like, really? Oh, it's a sport. And so it, it, it can be really difficult for them to understand that the loads and the demands they're placing on their body are absolutely the reason why they're injuring themselves. Um, Annie, do you have anything else to add on that point? 
And I think in terms of the load and the load that's required through the body for these performing artists, if we compare them to other elite sports, such as a team sport, such as NRL or AFL, they are training during the week, but they don't need to get to their peak performance 110% out on the deck. Uh, and they might do that once a week. So yes, they have training, but this training situation is always slightly different to the game situation. Uh, and in these performing artists, they are often pulling themselves up to this uh, game situation eight, nine times a week, plus the rehearsals, as Catherine mentioned. So really it's they're drawing on not just the physical aspect, but also that psychological aspect of having to bring themselves up to that peak performance that many times a week. And how do you go as a clinician if you're trying to manage load with an injured artist? It can be really challenging. I think it depends a little bit on uh, whether they're in a performance uh, state, so whether they're part of a show and they're at the beginning of a, a run or the end of a run or in the middle, or if they're in a rehearsal phase or if they're in an off phase, like between contracts and things like that. Um, so if they're in an off phase, it's a lot easier because there's no, I guess, obligation. Um, uh, this is going to sound really terrible to a performer, but there's no, I guess, uh, urgency or obligation to continue practicing, for instance. Um, so they can afford to have a couple of weeks off if they need it for rest and recovery. Um, whereas if you're in a rehearsal phase, it, it's quite challenging to take that time off because you're learning repertoire and you're learning choreography and blocking and all that sort of thing. So you sort of need to be there. And then, of course, in a performance phase, people don't want to miss performing because that's the whole reason why they... Um, they've signed up. The other challenge in a performance phase is not every show will have covers or understudies. And so it might end up coming to the point where if a certain uh, performer or cast member can't actually go on stage, you have to make that decision. Well, how much can you modify what they're doing to allow them to keep performing um, before then you have to cancel the show? So that has a lot of financial implications, not just for the individual who's um, coming in with an injury, but for the entire company and audience members and things like that Uh, and I think one of the only benefits of COVID I guess in this perspective has been it's given people performers ample opportunity to actually rehab themselves and do it properly rather than nursing injuries through during rehearsals and performances. So one of the other challenges we find is these performing artists are moving around from city to city, state to state and they're care and their physical care and their uh, mental health care can also be quite variable and in the performing arts often your day off is your travel day so you're having a day off you're traveling and then you're literally performing the next day and depending on the resources that you have and the size of the company that you're working within your day off after you've traveled you might then bump in what we call bumping in moving set putting props up, organising the stage, and then you're literally performing. So that there's a really big load on the body uh, physically and mentally to uh, manage an off day as a travel day. And so that can often happen if someone's with the musicians in particular for the gig economy, they are literally moving each day. And then for some of the shows that are more established and they might land somewhere for six to eight weeks, there is a bit of reprieve around having some time to settle, get into your routine. But as soon as you're in your routine again, you're up and you're moving to another city and another state. So that can uh, provide some challenges around the care that you're receiving and finding the right practitioners for you in each location. We can still all stay connected. 
And if I can circle back on something Catherine said a little bit earlier around COVID and people having some time off and, and recovering, rehabbing some of their injuries, what we have found when we returned to the theatre and the theatres came up again was there was actually quite a, a big spike in injuries and we found that it's very difficult to reproduce, like in any elite sport, the show environment. So you can do as many dance classes as you want, play for as long as you want, but often you're not at that peak stress level that you need to perform. And so once you once we opened up last time, we had rehearsals straight back on. So people may not have done things for a very long time. So they'll be staying fit, but not necessarily at that peak fitness. And then all of a sudden rehearsals start and rehearsals have a really high load in a very short space of time. And then the expectation to then perform on top of that. So we noticed a big spike in load-related injuries uh, in the first six weeks, six to eight weeks coming back when we reopened last time. So clearly injuries are a problem in this population. Is there any evidence to support the effectiveness of injury prevention programs in performing artists? Yeah, look, there's been some research. I know there's a group, um, Caroling Bolling, in 2019. They have done a study in elite sports and, and they've also done some studies in circus performers. And their study showed that elite sports saw injury prevention as really useful and then trying to translate that into, uh, into a performing arts program had actually been a, a study in 2019 by Tundi et on musicians about implementing an exercise-based injury prevention program in string players. And what they actually found was people were interested and thought, yeah, that's a great idea. But the actual implementation was really poor. And, and it was because people didn't have time or didn't perceive they had time to prioritise the, the training to do for, um, for the injury prevention so that, that's the research, which is pretty thin. I think anecdotally, uh, we, we find that the companies now are doing more baseline or profiling of bodies before they start rehearsals. And that's really great and amazing. But if we don't use the data for something that's useful then I, uh, and to provide a program, then that's where we're falling down a little bit in the industry. And often we will provide a program for people, but it's in the start of their rehearsal period. So when you are starting in your rehearsal period, you're not necessarily thinking about the injury prevention. And so what we found is the uh, ability for people to prioritise it and complete the program that may have been set for them is, is not necessarily on their top priority. just going to say that one of the other issues or potential barriers I guess in terms of formulating research to this so uh, obviously the implementation is a big challenge but the other thing is every show particularly in the music theatre and I guess acting world it's completely different so it's really hard to come up with some sort of uh, pro forma I guess for what every individual needs or what every um, I guess cast or show needs for preventing injuries so you might have some shows where um, 
you know, they're wearing really big wigs and headdresses and things. And you can probably guess that a lot of their uh, injuries are going to be sort of upper limb and neck related. And then you might have another show that's uh, really uh, awkward footwear. So they might have a lot of foot and ankle injuries. And then you might have another show where the costumes weigh 30 kilos each. So maybe you'll have a lot of lower back-ish injuries. And then even within a cast, every role is very different when you look at leads versus ensemble members. Um, typically in some shows there are dance tracks and then there are singing tracks and there might be more acting tracks and you know physical tracks and things like that so it can be really difficult to give I guess a um like a generic sort of program that the whole cast can do in their warm-up together so it really does rely on the individual performer themselves going away and doing their own individual tailored exercise program and I guess in terms of resourcing it's not realistic that you know you can have um, every single performer in a cast going through a supervised provision of that. It, you really do rely on the individual doing it as part of their own warm up. I'm assuming you have to be quite creative in the way that you might modify things or you know change their position that they might be doing something. Do you have any, I guess, yeah, real life examples of that? A lot of the things we have to think about when the show is up and running, if we need to modify things, it always needs to go through the creative team. So it's really like working with any other sport. You've got to speak with the coaches, the, the team managers, the performance optimization people. So we're speaking with the creative teams, the directors, uh, the company managers, creating a, a solution that works for the show and also works for the performer. And so some examples of that might be taping. So if someone needs taping uh, for their shoulder, you know, can we actually tape their shoulder and it not be seen from, you know, off, you know, under their costume? So is there a way that we can do it in a creative way that they allows them to perform and allows their costume to be uh, the product that needs to be produced out on stage? And that's a really a real creative solution. One example is, you know, we had someone with a, a finger injury and they were totally fine to perform but their finger was a little, it was pretty sore and we wanted to tape it together, but they have gloves in all of their scenes. And so it was like, right, well, if they can't put gloves on, in actual fact, they couldn't perform because the gloves was part of their, were part of their costume. And so that person was like, well, do we actually have to just take that person off because we can't tape their finger and their finger actually needs to be taping or do we need to create some other sort of splint? So we actually fashioned some crazy splint to go in the glove <laughs> so they had a huge finger but they were able to fit into the glove so they're the types of things that we're being creative around um making sure that people can be on and it respects the product and when i'm talking about a product often when people develop shows in the us or the uk and it comes to australia the producers will buy the show and buy the rights to the show and sometimes there's not much leeway in changing what they've purchased so they need to be true to what they've purchased for it to go on. And so you have your creatives from the, the international creatives approving all of the choreography, approving the show, and that once the show is set, that's what needs to be produced. So that's really in a music theatre land. I think if you're in more of a circus, individualised situation, there is a lot more flexibility. If it's just one or two people in an act, you can change uh, costumes around, you can change choreography because it's more flexible and it's more individual. However, if you're in a product like a team sport, like music theatre, it's often a little bit more tricky. 
And I guess one of the other things to consider with that is the impact on the other performers as well. So, for instance, um, I remember a show once where everyone was doing, um, they all had to kick at the same time at the same height. And I think one of the performers had a, a hip impingement or something going on. So they couldn't get their leg above sort of 90 degrees hip flexion. And the option was everyone had to drop their leg height or that performer had to go off as well, even though it seems such a simple modification, we'll just kick to 90 degrees instead of all the way up to your head. Um, because it, aesthetically it looks completely different. And then the other side is if you're actually doing partnering. So, yeah, you know, similar to other um, sports and situations where the safety of other performers comes into it as well. So it might be okay that a particular person can go on and, you know, I, I guess um, have some risk involved for themselves that they might be sore afterwards or, you know, add more time to their overall rehabilitation. But if they have to lift or spot someone, um, you're, you're also then putting the other people at risk of injuring. And then you have two or three people who are out instead of just the one. So those things are, I think are important to weigh up as well. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, it's, and then as Annie was saying, certainly that creative side of things, just respecting the work itself as well um, and making sure that if you are suggesting tweaks, you're always going through the either the dance captain or the choreographer or the director or you're having a really open discussion about the rationales for why you're discussing, sorry, the rationales for why you're suggesting these changes but also understanding that if that can't happen, then that's okay and we'll come up with some other solution. So, Catherine, if I'm a clinician who knows nothing about dance, ballet, calisthenics, acting, music, do I need to understand it to manage these artists? And do you have any tips for clinicians? I would say the short answer is yes, you probably should have some understanding of what they're doing, particularly around the culture of the sport um, or the art form and also uh I think performers will respect you a lot more if you have an understanding of the language that they speak in. So um, a ballet dance is a really great example because ballet terms are all French words. So if someone comes in and says, every time I do a développé à la seconde, I get a clicking in my hip. It helps if you are, if you know what a développé à la seconde actually is because you don't then have to have that discussion and try and get them to show you something. Um, and, you know, it gives, I think it gives you a little bit more credibility as a clinician. But if you have absolutely no idea, one of the easiest things you can do is just tell the performer, can you explain exactly what's involved or can you show me, um, you know, a video of, of what it should look like and, and things like that. Um, and some performers that I know really, really well that obviously I have an understanding of what they do, I still ask them, you know, for specific, uh, you know, films or um, details about what they're doing because it really gives you a better understanding of why they might have had an injury in the first place and then also um, what you can do to manage it long term. First thing is remember that you're a really good allied health professional and listening and having empathy and communicating with them is the key thing. So if you're using those skill sets, then you can tap into all the things that Catherine have said and you and then use your problem-solving skills to help them and also take their artistic health seriously. So if they say they're a performer for their full-time job, don't just assume it's a hobby. So really listen to and understand what it is that they need to be able to do. So acknowledging that I think it's just got to be the key thing. 
Catherine, tell the listeners a little bit about your journey and if you have any tips for those who might be interested in getting into the performing arts space. Yeah, so I originally got into physio because I I did quite a lot of dancing growing up um, and like most people who do a lot of dancing growing up, I had this idea that I was going to become a professional dancer and then one day my dance teacher said to me um, quite eloquently, oh, I don't, I don't think that's the career choice for you, which in hindsight I have no regrets and she was right. I, it wasn't the right career choice for me. So it was good advice. Um, so yeah. And then a friend of mine at, at school said, oh, you know, uh, physios work with dancers. And I was like, oh, that sounds all right. So worked really hard and got into physio. Um, and yeah, I did a, a placement, an elective placement at the Aussie Ballet Company when I was in my final year. Um, and then I, yeah, I spoke to Sue and she said, oh, look, it's always good if you get some hospital experience. So I went and got some hospital experience but I wanted to keep my foot in the door um, with sort of the dance and the sports world. So I joined the sports committee um, for the APA in Victoria. And then, yeah, so through that, then I actually met Annie and then I heard about um, performance medicine. I think in terms of advice, um, and I get this a lot, we get quite a few students, physio students coming and doing placement with us and they always ask, oh, how do we go about getting into this industry? And I really think just it's the same when you're trying to get into any kind of elite sport, sort of put yourself out there, make good connections with people who you aspire to um, and also who you um, sort of workplaces that you'd like to work in as well in that industry. I think if you can link in with dance schools or community theatre groups, if it's definitely something you're interested in uh, and provide some education and some you know, some tastes of maybe culture change um, around things like, you know, you can get injured too and pain is not always a good thing. I know I did some amateur theatre when I was at uni just for a bit of fun with some friends and the number of people that, you know, would seek me out being like, oh, can you just have a look at my knee? It hurts every time I did this and all that sort of thing was just huge. So I think, and yeah, I think if you can, if you are in that space and have some skills or some knowledge to share, that's one of the best things you can do. And it's the same with other community sports. And um, particularly, I think with children and teenagers, often their training loads are massive compared to what they probably should be if you look at you know their hours per week and their age and I think in performing arts that tends to be even bigger because you know if you're working to become a music theatre performer you're training in acting and dance and then singing as well and then you might be training um, you know some acrobatics for other skills and all these other bits and places plus your other sports that you're doing through school and stuff like that so I think yeah all of that um, is yeah I think there's definitely a role for community physios at that community level for sure. I think that vocal physio side of things is around gaining as much knowledge as you can as a clinician with your jaw uh, and TMJ work, your upper cervical spine and any breath work in and attending courses specifically for those areas. And from a, you know, learning specifically about vocal physiotherapy, the there aren't many courses available for re, um, actually studying it. There's a couple from the, the US and then I've developed a course that um, runs through performance medicine for people to learn specifically about the vocal physiotherapy techniques and then how you would um, layer those into your treatment. And if you are interested in that area, understanding your TMJ, your upper cervical spine, and then layering on your vocal work on top of that. I think that's really key. And don't underestimate the importance of those three things uh, working together. And if you are interested in vocal physiotherapy, also start listening to people's voices and just 
listening and what are people doing, look at people talking, not just um, listening to someone blindly and, you know, and I say blindly because you're not looking but also not hearing. So really just start challenging yourself to seeing what you're actually hearing and what you're seeing when people are talking. And if people are interested, they can always reach out to us at Performance Medicine and we can point people in the right direction. Annie, tell us a little bit about the research you're doing and where you think the next big breakthroughs are. So, Brooke, we're conducting a retrospective cohort study looking at the musculoskeletal injury rates and prevalence in professional music theatre performers. We've been involved with many shows and we actually have data from 18 shows that meet our criteria for the study with on average about 30 performers. So our sample size is around 540 performers and we're in the process of collating and analysing the data and we're really excited to see what's going to come out, what patterns are going to come out of that data and this is going to help formulate and direct some of our treatments and planning and injury prevention in the future. So we're hoping that this, so this study is primarily on music theatre, but we also are looking to do it on straight plays and other genres within the performing arts industry. And we're really hoping to start putting performing arts healthcare on the map with a bit of research. One for the listeners who may do a bit of public speaking, either in person or online in this Zoom world that we live in, do you have any tips for uh, getting engagement through voice? The Zoom topic's a really interesting one. I think definitely with um, the start of COVID and everyone working online and doing all their uh, meetings and conferences uh, and, you know, even just day-to-day work speaking online, I certainly saw a whole bunch of previous voice patients that I haven't seen for two or three years because they've been self-managing and and doing really well come back um, and their voices were just shot. And one of the things that we've uh, worked out through our own clinical experience, but also liaising with the ENTs and the speech pathologists that we work at is when you're online, you have all of these uh, warped perceptions of what's going on. So if you have the cameras turned on, the people's faces look tiny. So there's a perception that they're further away. So innately, you're going to project a lot more or shout or yell. Um, the other thing is if you can't hear them very well, it's going to sound like that they're further away as well. So again, you're going to shout and project and, and potentially um, overload your voice. And then one of the most obvious things that's really easy to, I guess, work out as any sort of um, clinician is posture. So as Annie mentioned at the very start, posture is crucial in in voice production. Um, It enables you to have the optimal breath size, um, but then also, you know, your larynx is in the middle of your neck. And if your neck is not in a great position yeah one of the most important things is posture and obvious things so uh, your larynx where you you know create the sound sits right in the middle of your neck so if your computer or camera is not set up well or your microphone's not in a good position um, then you're going to be in a bit of an awkward posture from a head neck perspective and that's automatically going to put more load through your voice the other thing I'm going to jump in there with this is a bit of left of field I did a voice uh course for myself personally we see lots of people but it's very nice to do your own personal professional development as well and one of my key takeaways and this is from a guy called Vin Jiang your and he said that your face is the remote control for your voice so when you're presenting you've got your posture right you've got your setup all right make sure that your 
facial expressions match how you want your voice to sound. And so if you want to sound bright and happy, put a smile on, even if you're just on the phone and no one can see you. So it's very hard to do a grumpy, horrible voice um, when you've got a smile on your face. So that's one way to actually think, right, how am I going to engage with my classroom, with my, tu- with my tutors, whoever it is you're engaging with, get a smile on your face even if you, they can't see you because then your voice will sound smiley and friendly and warm and people will want to engage with you that way. Thanks, Annie. My husband would definitely con- concur with the yelling at the computer. It's a common problem, definitely. One other tip I find really useful is to use your body as though you would be using it if you were speaking to someone in person, so face-to-face. So use your hands to engage and use your hands and your body. If you move around a little bit and you're natural in your body and your dynamic with your posture, then your voice is going to come out more naturally and it will sound more engaging as well so if you're a if you're a hand speaker I'm definitely a hand speaker I'm using my hands all over the place while I'm doing this even though no one can see me if you're a hand speaker use your hands because then you're going to present more naturally and you're going to engage more naturally whether it be in a meeting or presenting. Annie can you please leave the listeners with three key takeaways uh, for clinicians who are treating performing artists? Absolutely So my top three are take them seriously, try to understand the requirements of load and be creative. So to drill down on those a little bit, take them seriously. If a performer says, I need to put my leg behind my head, they do. They need to do that for the job. So understand that that's where they need to be and you need to help them get there. You can't say, oh, don't worry about that. It's not important. It may actually be super important for them to do their job to get their head their leg behind their head. So take them seriously. The second one, try to understand the requirements of their load. So remembering that they will be performing and rehearsing at a high load and they may actually not be able to modify their load, you know, the way you might want to. So you'll need to be creative around what you can and can't do with them. So understanding what they need to do is key. Lastly, be creative. So that sort of goes into the one before, but be creative. So one of the reasons, you know, we all become health professionals is to help people and problem solve. And so be creative about what you're doing. Think outside the box and work with that person so that you can bounce around some fun ideas to help them achieve what they need to achieve, you know, getting the head, the leg behind the head. That's really key. And have some fun with it as well. So enjoy it and take joy in what you're doing with the person. It's been fantastic to chat to you both. If the listeners want to get in touch with Annie or Catherine, the details along with some fantastic resources are in the show notes. Thank you for listening to this BJSM podcast and we hope you have a physically active day. Mm-hmm.